From the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, welcome back to the In Social Work podcast. Hi, everybody. I'm Peter Sabota. Good as always to have you along. For a long time, social work has positioned itself as the person in environment empowerment profession, characterized by an ecological perspective. That said, it seems like social work practitioners feel comfortable and competent helping people cope with the consequences and the impacts of environmental stressors, but not so much comfort and competence with working in practice spheres that work to put a stop to these impacts at their source. Our guest today is Elisa Chirico, MLA, a social worker, landscape architect, and a student of comparative literature who does not appear to have this struggle. The societal values related to power and wealth, competition for resources, and exploitation of natural resources and environments that shape our culture often offer progress for some, but often at the expense and oppression of the most vulnerable members of our society. If social workers are going to work for change and the empowerment of vulnerable populations, it would be wise for us to lead the fight for environmental justice and social change against the forces that leave our clients out in the cold. Ms. Chirico will discuss all things related to environmental social work and guide us through the connections that can help us develop more comprehensive conceptualizations and assessments and be more articulate and effective players fighting for social, economic, and racial justice in our roles as practitioners, leaders, and educators. Alisa Chirico, MLA, is a student in the Master of Social Work program at the UB School of Social Work. She also has a master's degree in landscape architecture from Cornell University. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to In Social Work. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm really well. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. All right. So I've already told you that I think you have a really interesting and unique path to not only the social work profession, but also your specialty. So I would invite you to just tell us all what I know a little bit about. And could you could you just do that to just get us going and understand how you got here? Well, it all started in 1993 and Mrs. <laughs> Wilbur's. <laughs> this is a one hour podcast, Lisa. I know. So I started uh, being aware of environmental issues in her class. So I think I mentioned that because it goes back to my awareness of how as a society and as a culture, we knew some of the things that we had done poorly in the past. And I mm -hmm. had this assumption that, oh, now we know what we need to do to do better. And so we're going to. Then I decided that I wanted to be a therapist and I kind of took a circuitous route through college. I wound up basically following a path to landscape architecture. <laughs> so clinical was, therapist to landscape architecture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I told the listeners that this was going to be unique. So, okay, go ahead. Yes. Yes. So, um, so yeah, so I decided that I wanted to be a therapist that didn't go very well for me in my undergraduate experience. And so I, it was a very heavy testing environment there. Mm -hmm. So I switched majors to comparative literature at a certain point when I realized that grades matter beyond just what I was learning. Oh, those. So, so I, I, I had this like cultural awareness. The comp lit degree was 
everything that I was already doing as electives and it was everything that was going really well for me. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was very happy and very successful in that. And then, you know, I graduated with a comparative literature degree into the recession of 2009. Yeah. And that wasn't a viable career path. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took some time off and decided that, you know, I, I still really felt passionately about helping the world doing something meaningful and helpful in the world. And so I went into landscape design and pursued a degree in landscape architecture, really loved that work that I did, Mm -hmm. really loved the discipline, loved everything that I learned. I went on to work in residential design. I did a little bit of work stewarding post-industrial meadowlands and really rounded that out eventually with working uh, in edible gardens and food systems and farming. Then I decided, you know, I always knew that I wanted to bring some of my knowledge full circle and kind of democratize the information that I had mm-hmm. in these really, really specialized areas. And, uh, and so, you know, Along the way, I decided that I wanted to come full circle back into social work to be able to be heard about the things that I know about the environment and about people and how they interact, how they benefit from mutual care um, and stewardship. And so that's how I'm here today. Yeah. And thanks. On first blush, it sounds circuitous, maybe, (laughs) but like most of these things in hindsight, it makes pretty good sense, actually. Yeah. You know, I had my own bout with psychology a long time ago. And what kind of drew me uh, to social work rather than psychology was the whole like macro environment. And mm-hmm. that, that perspective that, you know, this place where we live and places, you know, have a lot to do with yeah. kind of the things that happen to individual people. So. Thank you. And and the fit actually between all of this makes perfect sense. And it does. Yeah. The thing that landscape architecture gave me was this sort of overarching systemic background. So landscape architecture happens at different scales. So with uh, with social work, you have micro macro meso Mm -hmm. in landscape. You have site scale. You have Mm -hmm. going all the way up to regional scale and these systemic changes. And we understand within landscape architecture how. Um, certain social practices like redlining have really <laughs> tangible outcomes for people in their lives. Yeah. All right. Thanks. So before we get into, I think, what I would call the, the nuts and bolts of our discussion, what I wanted to start with, if it's OK with you, was just laying out some, I think, important definitions that'll kind of frame the rest of our conversation. I just want to make sure we're all talking about the same thing. This would be almost like a quiz here. So bear with me. How would you define, and I understand this this is probably going to be your take on it. How would you define environmental social work? So I think that environmental social work kind of adds the environmental, the larger environmental piece to what we call in social work, the biopsychosocial model. So the Mm -hmm. biopsychosocial model is a model of social work in, in my definition that acknowledges that the well-being of the individual is interaction between their their social environment, their mental health, which would be their psycho, 
and their physical safety and well-being. And that's the bio. And then mm-hmm. the environmental piece just takes into account the, the ways that our physical environments, so our access to green space, our, our access to healthy, clean air, water, food, healthy soils, even the way that our political landscape impacts our well-being. That's that environmental piece that that comes into them environmental social work. Yeah, thanks. And that's actually one of the reasons why we wanted to talk with you is because I think a lot of social workers, me included, you know, the environment piece is hopefully the part of how we think about everything. But you've yeah. kind of taken it one step further, I think, and put, I think, a primary focus mm-hmm. on I'm literally the environment and 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 really making that the target and the, mm-hmm. the main focus of your thinking and your interventions. So how about, you know, in the definition part of our show here, how about environmental justice? Yeah. So environmental justice is a huge part of environmental social work, as I perceive it. Environmental justice is basically a movement working towards equitable access to healthy social and environmental systems. Um, so everybody, so it's, it's just, it's just, and it's right for everybody to have a stable home, if that's what they choose to have access to that, to have, to not have that compromised by a political system or basically all abilities, all genders, all races, all ethnicities, all sexualities, all ages, everybody has access to the physiological benefits of stability and safety in their environment. Yeah. And also the right not to have an expressway built in the middle of your neighborhood. So folks exactly. from the suburbs can get to downtown quicker, which is exactly. what we've kind of done here, unfortunately, in, in Buffalo. And um, also the right to live in a space where, you know, there is an industry carelessly spewing and pollutants into the air or into the water. You know, the Cuyahoga River is currently being threatened right now. Again. Um, again, yeah, after you know, it got again, better. Yeah. After it got better. Yeah, we made it better. We were like, yes, good for us. Pat mm-hmm. ourselves on the back. And and now it's being polluted again. So, yeah. And just to kind of, I mean, I, I think you're by far have more expertise on this th- than I, but I think it's probably fair to say that whenever the environment is compromised or altered in ways that cause impacts on people's lives, it unfortunately almost seems to fall hardest on the people who are most vulnerable, which I think is exactly for social work and what you're right, talking yeah. about. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, we have fast fashion, right? So those of us who, you know, it's everything is intertwined in this, in like a capitalist exploitative system. So mm. the choices that we make to to clothe ourselves in specific ways have a, a very negative impact on people who are also being exploited. So the suppression of fair wages here causes us to make choices that aren't maybe the choices that are most ethical that we would choose if we had that financial power. And then there's that fallout of other people far away also being exploited, their wages suppressed, their lifestyles being damaged in really, truly awful ways. And we see that with clothing. We see that with our telephones. 
Mm-hmm. We, we see that in so many ways. Furniture, we see that in farming. So it's the people who are doing the most labor and who are the most impoverished and the people who are, those wind up being the people who are most impacted by a lack of safety in their environments and also by climate change. Yeah, thanks. Well, I actually think you have led in perfectly to my last and final definition, but I'll ask it anyway and let you elaborate if you'd like to. How about defining environmental intersectionality? Oh, I love environmental intersectionality. So to me, that is the way that we all do better when the environment is protected, stewarded properly. We all do better when women do better. Mm. When women do better, the environment does better. Mm -hmm. We all do better when we pay attention to indigenous wisdom. We all do better when we care for people who are minorities. So all of these things are intertwined and intersecting. And so we can't just think about my environmental impact happens here today on my lawn. My environmental wellness impacts your environmental wellness and your environmental and overall wellness impacts mine as well, because everything is interconnected and intersecting. Yeah, great. Thank you. And those ideas, I think, are going to form the container for everything else we end up talking about today. So thanks for doing that. So, you know, we kind of alluded to this a little bit, but for a long time, you know, our profession has been kind of known for our person in environment focus and and value. While at the same time, interestingly enough, environmentalism has been really it's been slow to the table. Mm-hmm. Is that fair in terms of um, social work education and, mm-hmm. and, and practice, let alone a dedicated interest, you know, for social workers? And, you know, that's why we have you. <laughs> what, what's your thought there? Do you I mean, how do you make sense of that? How, you know, why did that happen and how, especially for us of all people? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question because you think you would think that we would see that implicitly when we start to think about macro issues as social workers. But I think that part of the issue is that it feels like it's not our problem. It feels like it doesn't fall within our purview because we're taking care of the social aspect of people's lives, right? And Moving outside of that to look at environmentalism or or environmental concerns just feels like too much. It feels too big. It feels too big for climate scientists. It feels too big for mm-hmm. landscape architects. It feels too big once you once you know more, you just know too much in some ways. And it just feels too big. And as social workers, we're dealing with really granular issues, like whether or not a mother who is a client of ours is able to take her child to their doctor's appointments and what, why she can't, is it because of X, Y, or Z thing? And so we we're really, we're really trying to take care of like the nitty gritty of people's daily lives. And then we come home and we just, we just can't cope with this global awareness in this way. But I think that, you know, I, I heard a professor of mine say, 
last year that social work has a marketing issue. So the way that society sees social workers isn't the way that social workers see social workers. <laughs> so, you know, the, this idea that CPS, you know, threatens your ability to, to keep your child rather than CPS being a source for assistance and wraparound services that make it easier for you to be the best parent you want to be and that your child needs. That's the shift that social workers now know that we've taken. But not everybody knows that. Also, you know, social workers, we don't we don't receive, um, you know, the financial compensation that really we deserve for doing the kinds of work that we're doing because we're we're seen as as being a very specific kind of discipline. But I think that, you know, environmentalism, more and more people are becoming aware culturally, societally of the importance of our climate, of, of, of maintaining forests, of taking care of the, the earth around us, the soil, eating organic food uh, when we can, um, having access to good, healthy food. And I think that environmental socialism might actually be the answer to our, our marketing issue, to our image problems, because we can incorporate, rather than this hyper-professionalism, this, these goals to be um, you know, hyper-professionalized, uh, trying to be psychologists, trying to prescribe medication, which I don't argue that really, but, right. um, but professionalizing ourselves in an other way where we're taking into account these, these, um, these broader issues of our, of the landscapes that we live in as a society and, and, and as individuals. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that environmental socialism can really, could really like, zhuzh up our image as social workers. <laughs> See, I, I, what I would add to that is that we're often our own worst enemies too, mm -hmm. uh, because we, we, you know, we limit ourselves to traditional paths and articulations of our work. Mm -hmm. And to go back to my original question, sort of, is that, you know, we began you know, the, the social workers who worked in the early settlement houses, they got this really good. Mm -hmm. They were they knew what you were talking about. But our profession, to me, at least, seems to have we've kind of hitched our wagon onto, and you were alluding to this, to like clinical social work and psychiatric social work. And, you know, whether we did that for status or for better salaries or even because it was needed. It, you know, that's a whole nother podcast, mm -hmm. but I'm going to give you a chance now to get yourself in some trouble. Lisa, are you ready? Oh, I'm excited. Yeah. Well, <laughs> all right. So given all that and you're around students as well, you know, you're still in, in the formal part of your education. You know that a lot of students and even people who, who are beyond that in, in the practice world are interested primarily in clinical work. And, you know, largely micro practice. So here, here's your chance to get yourself in trouble, Lisa. Are clinical social work and environmental social work mutually exclusive? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Why would they be mutually exclusive? No, because. <laughs> mm. <laughs> no, no, because as a as a person, as an individual as a human, I can live in the world 
with an environmental consciousness of how to behave. I can bring that into my clinical practice just the way that I could bring my feminism into my clinical practice in a, in a way that's safe for me and for my clients, just in the way that I am, just in, the, just in my very being, right? And I can do that with environmentalism as well. I can, I can have a consciousness about how to be in the world. And I can bring that to my sessions with my clients because not only will I have clients who, who are, all of my clients will be impacted by environmental issues. I may have a client walk in who never really had breathing problems before, but last summer they did when we had wildfires, um, you know, the smoke from Canadian wildfires coming down. That's, that's an environmental impact that's happening to a person who is then going to have to deal with the choice of, you know, their awareness of their health insurance, right? And whether or not they should go to a doctor and how they should behave in their life. And those people, that person's going to need support around that, possibly around coming to terms with all the things that that might bring in. I might have a client who's facing food insecurity because they live in a part of town where there isn't a decent grocery store. And they maybe they do, maybe they don't know how to or have access to land or resources to grow their own food. But I can, as a social worker, I can connect them with community organizations. Like here in Buffalo, we have grassroots gardens. I can connect them with a community garden uh, place where they can, you know, uh, learn at a workshop how to take care of things on their own property if they may, or they can have access to a community garden plot. As a social worker, there's so many things that I can do to give people the tools and the access to be better actors in their own lives and empower them to do so. Yeah. Okay. I've got, I've got two thoughts now that I'm listening to you. I mean, Mm -hmm. the first one that, you know, came to my mind is that, you know, rather than having a client who has asthma Mm -hmm. through your lens, you have a client who has asthma, who needs something, but what Mm -hmm. you also have literally is a public health concern. Exactly. And an opportunity to partner Mm -hmm. and to problem solve at that level with our colleagues. One hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. So the other thing, too, is uh, like, if yeah. you know, we have a large refugee population here in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not personally familiar with our refugee population, but climate diaspora is a real thing. People leave places because mm-hmm. of climate disasters. There's trauma in that mm-hmm. and there's there's displacement in that. And so Buffalo is a place that does have a large refugee population being aware of the kinds of trauma and the kinds of experiences people might have been through being displaced or, or, or whatever, that's also really important for us to be aware of when we're working with agencies that are working with, with uh, immigrant or refugee populations. Yeah. And we would also be, I think, well-served to not only frame it the way you did, but also, you know, talk about this in terms of human rights. Absolutely. Um, 100%. I don't know. It's, we seem to have gotten a lot better about the trauma lens but we we really do need to get better at articulating our concerns, not only from that. I mean, especially, you know, most trauma and human rights are violations are intertwined anyway. So why aren't we using that language as much as we could? So here is the other thought that I had, and, and this will be another chance maybe for you to get yourself in some trouble. But 
You got in absolutely no trouble with the first one. We'll see what happens. So here's my thought. It seems to me, and I'm just looking for you to react, honestly. It seems to me that social workers feel comfortable and capable and have some familiarity, at least with helping people cope with treating and uh, addressing the kind of the consequences or the symptoms of environmental issues or changes. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? We kind of do that. We, yeah. Yeah. Whether, now, whether we're conscious of it or not, that's, that's what we're, that's what we do. I mean, like, like you said, if we see a person who is living in a, mm-hmm. in a community where the air is bad and they're having symptomology, we link them to services that will help improve that. Of course. Yeah. But, and here's what I'm wondering if you have some thoughts on, but we don't seem, at least to me, to be so comfortable and familiar with working to outright stop it mm-hmm. at the source. Like we don't go into grassroots organizing or advocacy to, like, for example, go after the people who might be dumping stuff into our water and to our and into our air. So if you buy that, now that, that's, that's my premise. If you buy that characterization, why do you think that is? Why do we, we seem to be okay with helping people deal with the symptoms, but we often seem to stop there. And we don't, at least in my, the way that I move around in the social work world, I don't hear a lot of us who are going after mm-hmm. the source in the yeah. larger environment. So a helpful conceptualization that I came across in a class that I took last year in infant mental health was, Mm -hmm. you know, this idea of babies coming down a river and needing help and, oh, well, we can pick all these babies up out of the river, right. And give them what they need, scoop them up, take care of them. But why, you know, the question is, why, why are there babies in the river? Like, how did they get there? <laughs> Put them there. Why are they there? We need to go up river and we need to look at who's putting babies in this river. And I think that that's, we need to do that as well within environmental social work. So we need to look at why, uh, why a paint company is dumping, uh, you know, waste into rivers. Um, we can do that as social workers, you know, we work. I, you know, I think you're correct um, in saying that we'll, you know, we'll go to Albany to take care of issues as they come up. Um, but we don't necessarily go to Albany to join forces, at least in my knowledge, my experience, what I've seen, what I hear around me to mm-hmm. go to Albany to join forces with um, environmentalists um, to 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 prevent those things. You know, those are environmental activists who are like, Hey, could you, could you do X, Y, Z? Exactly. Yes. And I, that's, that's specifically what I want to do. (laughs) That's why I came back to the school so that I could be, I could bring that part of myself into the macro and advocacy and maybe policy work that I do in the future. And I am, and there are, um, some people. So, um, I know one other social worker, uh, her name is Nicole Capazello. I know Nicole and you're pronouncing it better than I am. So, okay. <laughs> um, wonderful person. So, um, so she's working 
with uh, she's a leader within Grassroots Gardens, which is the um, the organization that I that I mentioned before. But she works. Uh, she's a social worker. She's a Ph.D. student. And uh, her work is in mental health and gardens. So that's her focus. Her focus. She's also focusing now on um, the lack of tree cover, tree canopy cover, which has multiple environmental hmm. social uh, benefits, um, emotional benefits um, on the east side of Buffalo, which has the lowest level of tree canopy cover in our city. So mm-hmm. there's at least two of us, at least two of us who are doing this. And uh, I've also, I shouldn't be laughing. Yeah. Yeah. And I've also brought in um, the leader of the University of Buffalo Association of Black Social Workers, the president of that organization, Vanity Withrow. So um, she and I and Nicole um, and another organization, Western New York Trash Mob, uh, we're working on a couple of different um, initiatives that blend social work with environmental projects that are happening this summer. So, um, so you know, if 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 social workers as a whole aren't doing this work, that's okay because social workers as a whole aren't doing elder care, right? Social workers as a whole aren't all in childcare, you know. So we each all have our niche, and I can fold in my awareness of the needs of elders into my environmental work, just as they can fold in their awareness of what a healthy environment looks like for an elder into their work that they're doing. Nicely said, Alisa, nicely said. (laughs) Yeah. And I think even to just take that a little bit of a step further, I know I occasionally find myself encouraging students to not necessarily follow what I, I kind of call the, the traditional ladder path where, you know, you get an MSW, for example, and you go and work at a human service agency of some kind or a clinical setting. And, you know, you grind out a lot of work mm-hmm. and and really to think of your MSW as almost like a skill set that prepares you for work in not human service agencies per se, but things like politics, mm-hmm. journalism, even working in school administrations where you have these terrific opportunities to use your skill set in ways that can affect all the things that you're talking about. Really be the person in the room, you know, yeah. and at the table where these decisions about where to put a dump, <laughs> if you, you know. Yeah. And because that's and we can we should be doing that anyway. All right. This is this is not my podcast. This is sorry. <laughs> well, I don't that. disagree with you, Peter. So <laughs> well, yeah, and, and the opportunities, and you've spoken to this. I mean, there's opportunities in research and mm-hmm. in advocacy and education, Absolutely. social action, community organization. Mm-hmm. That's where the action happens. Mm-hmm. And certainly for, for what you're talking about in terms of environmental impacts. So, Mm -hmm. all right, let let me change gears slightly here. Mm -hmm. How about when I hear social workers speaking amongst themselves, academics or practitioners and students, it really doesn't matter. It's it's actually fairly common to hear that most environmental justice issues are, you know, a straight path to social and economic justice issues. 
And I know you have some thoughts about that. So I'm giving you an opening. Do you want to try and make some of those connections? Oh, goodness. Um, Let's see. So to me, this comes down to like a basic framework of knowledge being power, money being power and land (laughs) and land being sovereignty. Here comes capitalism again. There it is. Um, I have this wonderful sweatshirt. It's adorable um, that a friend gave me. It's it says uh, capitalism caused climate change. You know, it's because we we have this capitalist system that's based on eternal growth, mm-hmm. right? Endless growth. Uh, the sky is the limit. Um, and uh, and that 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 necessitates exploitation. It, it, it absolutely does, because. You know, if you think about the natural world, the natural systems of things, they're cyclical, right? We have an ebb and a flow. We have a summer, a fall, a winter, a spring. You know, we have death, we have rebirth. It's supposed to be cyclical, but capitalism demands an endless proliferation. And that requires an input, right? That requires something to feed the engine. And who does that? What does that? It's our environment, it's our natural resources, and it's ourselves. And that's why we have, that's why so much of our cultural quote unquote successes are put on the backs of people who have been historically, systematically disenfranchised. So economic justice is environmental justice. It kind of goes back to what I said very briefly before about you know, when you have suppressed wages, you, you know, money is a power, right? So if if you have a populace of people who don't have a lot of this one way we have a voice, then you have a populace who can't make, even if they want to make ethical choices around the ways that they consume things, because we all have to consume things in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. We don't have access to, to the most ethical decision-making that we might choose. And so we become part of this engine. We become part of what feeds it. And, um, and, you know, that's why we have to, that's why it's so important to fight it, but it's also why it becomes so important to be aware of it. Because if you're not aware of the ways in which, you know, the proliferation of cars and vehicles that caused America to, to be so sprawling, so stretched out in the ways that we build our cities, people can't access a city center to protest. You know, it really, it, ha- it impacts and hinders active democracy, the ways that we're meant to be able to use our voices as, as you know, part of a, a democratic, supposedly democratic institution. So, you know, and people have so little that they have to go to work. We have these systems that uh, necessitate no vacations, no time off, got to be at work, even if yeah. it's just to sit and stare in an office at a computer uh, without actually doing any meaningful and by meaningful, I mean work that feels meaningful to us as individuals. You know, we can't, we don't have that ability. You know, when you do protest, you have people driving by saying, get a job. Well, yeah. I want to have a job, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. and it really, it really hinders us. Yeah. And, and, and I think that you could, you could ask most black Americans and they would have a really great answer for you as well about how environmental justice, racial justice, and mm-hmm. uh, economic justice are intimately interwoven. 
Um, and I think we could ask some indigenous folks that as well absolutely. and get um, absolutely similar discouraging answers. Um, thanks. So I'm going to see if I can move us in like our best attempt to get really practical for anybody who is, you know, listening to this and being inspired or having light bulbs going off mm -hmm. while you're speaking. But again, buying some of the things that I think I said more than you did in the beginning, from where you sit, how do you think that we can get social workers and really people in general mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to feel the urgency mm -hmm. that you clearly feel mm -hmm. and to make these connections as readily as you do? Because this is not something, well, for example, with climate change, this is not something we're talking about now. It's here. And to go to what you just said, you know, it depends who you ask. They're going to tell you they've been dealing with it for a while. So mm -hmm. I, I wonder if you've thought about, like, how do we get social workers and then, of course, the, the broader population to feel uh, what you do the way mm -hmm. you do and really to be to be called urgently into mm -hmm. action? Do you have any kind of bright ideas other than revolution? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Other than revolution. Oh, gosh. Well, that's it. There we go. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you took my answer, Peter. Sorry. Um, All right. Well, well, we okay. can back that up. Yeah. Okay. A radical acceptance. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that I think that we can do, so there's a couple of things. One, one of them would be the starting point of understanding the ways in which the work that we're actively doing. So if we're as social workers, if we're helping our clients, to access reproductive justice, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. We're we're connecting um, young clients with uh, with abortion services or with um, information care around uh, you know their reproductive rights. We can understand how giving our clients that agency results in a better world economically for that individual, and then also equips that person with that the tools that they need to move into their world, to give that same agency to their friends and their peers. Right. So mm -hmm. if we, um, if we're, if we can understand the ways in which the work that we're already doing is helpful on some level, then that equips us as social workers to feel empowered and to feel like we're taking part in something, right. We're not separate from this work. Really? Not really. If we are advocating, um, you know, because, you know, our clients have issues with transportation and we start advocating for public transportation that makes all things more accessible to uh, to our clients and to the people in our towns and cities. That is that is an environmental justice issue. Accessibility is always an env environmental justice issue. Um, so just reframing the ways that we understand our work and then expanding on the ways in which we understand that. The other thing is just being intentional about it, about folding this in, about educating ourselves, about expanding our toolbox. Right. So when we yeah. when we are working uh, with policy, using using tools like mapping um, is, is a really interesting and really informative tool that we have access to. Um, as social workers, um, 
And I think that 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 would give us a little bit more confidence. And then the other thing is just really expanding our conception of what social work is Mm. um, as individuals. So I did this project uh, within my field placement recently. Um, So we're working on. So I, I, my clinic placement is at a hemophilia clinic. Mm-hmm. And so people who menstruate, who have hemophilia, their experience of menstruation is, is, mm-hmm. is different, right? It's happening on a different scale. It impacts them much more than maybe uh, people who don't have that issue. Um, and so we, you know, and then that has a, an impact on what we call period poverty, which is the financial impact mm-hmm. of menstruation. Mm-hmm. So. I put together um, under the leadership of my supervisor, I put together um, a proposal for positive period packs. So providing education and providing material support for our menstruating patients. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I did was in a sense of expanding what these people have access to in terms of taking care of themselves, incorporating reusable products. So period uh, cups and period underwear, reusable products mm-hmm. that can be used for years at a time. So, and then mm-hmm. also applicator free tampons so that there's a little bit less waste being produced. Right. And so we folded that in, we incorporated that in, we had a good economic financial basis in our proposal for incorporating those products. And then that provides a long-term solution for these patients and also expands their awareness of what's actually available. And so these patients will be able, if they come back to us and they say, I really love that period underwear, but I need more pairs. I need mm-hmm. more than just one. Then we can, then we have the ability to provide them with more of those so that then that, that one person is eliminating their reliance on uh, disposable products. So, and that then combats their period power, their experience of period poverty, right? It all fits Mm -hmm. in together. Mm -hmm. And I, and that's because I am who I am. Not everybody would have done that, but I did that because I'm always bringing this in, into my awareness of the ways that I'm working. And we actually wound up getting um, more money, more funding than we had originally asked for. So it was a really well-supported initiative that we undertook. So that's just one of the ways in which we as social workers can provide for our clients um, and our patients, if they're patients, um, in a multitude of settings. Yeah. You, you've done a number of really nifty things here. First of all, you've kind of answered the question about why are all, you know, why are all the babies always in the river? You got to go back. Right. Yeah. You got to yeah. go back to, um, and the other thing that you've done, I, I think what I loved about your answer to my question about, you know, how can we get people to feel this urgency? I think what you just did is the answer. You have the language. You're able to connect the levels and you take the time to make the links. You're you're connecting the dots for people. And I Mm -hmm. think that's something we could all get better at. You know, I was going to ask you, I'm I'm sorry, go ahead. No, good. And one other thing. So the urgency piece, so thank you for reminding me of that, is that um, we we can fight all of these battles. So we can choose our battle, right? We can choose our cause, the thing that we love, the thing that we care about, you know, we we're really passionate about X, Y, Z aspect of social work. Those, those causes will be ongoing for a really long time. 
they're, they're never going to end. You know, hopefully they will. I mean, it'd be really great if we took care of reproductive justice in this country and it was never a problem again. Right. That would be so cool. I would be so happy if yeah. children always had access to like all the information that they needed about understanding mm-hmm. our cultural history. But issues of climate and issues of our environment, they all have their own deadlines. We can't necessarily anticipate when that deadline is, but, you know, we live in our sixth mass extinction of the history of this planet right now. It's actively happening. Mm -hmm. Um, Once once certain animals are gone, once certain key pieces of different ecosystems are gone, they're never coming back. And even Mm -hmm. if we like reanimate them through science, um, that requires so much input, um, so much engineering. And it's really it's truly, really never the same. And so there isn't there is an urgency that's very real to these things because we can't we can't we can't we can't undo what's been done. So so I think that that's really an important awareness. Absolutely. You know, and I was also going to ask you about the practical ways in which, you know, for example, even uh, social work, especially practitioners who are working largely at the smaller system level can can do. And what can they incorporate into their practice? But you you basically answered that question. Mm -hmm. It was wonderful examples. So. Yeah, I'm thinking about this feels like a place where we could um, maybe wrap up the conversation, Elisa. But I'm wondering if there's something you would like to get to that I haven't raised because we do have we do have like a couple minutes to go here. If you'd like to maybe sneak something in here. Yeah, I think there's two things that I would like to sneak in. Okay. Um, one of those things is that is is our what a you know our universal right to um, the physiological, the true physiological benefits of access to green space. That's mm. very real. Mm-hmm. To to you know the appropriate aesthetics of the landscapes that we grew up in. We all have the right to see the night sky, right? We all have the right. I, in my belief, to be able to engage with and have access to the natural environment in a way that is um, restorative for us as individuals, right? Yeah. Like I, I realized yesterday, trees don't cause trauma. No tree has ever hurt anybody's safety <laughs> or well-being, and if it has, it's been because of some other force. It wasn't the tree itself, mm-hmm. right? The other thing is that you know. As social workers were interested in in issues of diversity and equity and inclusion, we're also interested in becoming more aware of indigenous knowledge of um, having more voices, having access to more voices and having more voices be present in the ways that we um, function as a society. We all, you know, many of us are interested in in having access to ancestral ways of growing things, for instance. Mm -hmm. And I believe very strongly that diversity of our approaches to everything um, that works on an environmental basis, as well as a social basis. Anytime you benefit the environment, you benefit people. And, and that's, and that's it. Now that is the place to end right there. (laughs) I think you nailed it. Alisa, thanks so much for joining us. You are a live wire and you're you're smart and articulate. And and thanks again for taking the time to, you know, to talk with us. 
I'm so about, happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh gosh, this is this is pleasure. what I came here for. So I'm really appreciative, and I'm so excited. And thank you. Pleasure's ours. Thanks again. Thanks again to our very own Elisa Chirico for joining us today. The residents of Planet Earth who comprise the In Social Work podcast team are our tech and web guru, Steve Sturman, our GA production assistant, guest coordinator, and digital editor, Nick DeSmet. Say hi, Nick. Hey, everybody. And I'm Peter Sabota. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time, everybody.